Hello, you are listening to Seabird. I am John Herlig. Welcome to the second half of season one. We've got six more exciting stories to go. Tales from tall ships, sailboat deliveries, good fortune, bad fortune, kidnappings, skydiving accidents, ocean crossings, and a chat with the founder of a yacht club in the kingdom of Tonga. You don't want to miss any of these. Seabird is sponsored by The Boat Galley and TheBoatGalley.com. If you want to learn how to buy a boat without crying yourself to sleep every night, or if you have a boat and would like to learn how to make life on it easier and more comfortable, go sign up for the free newsletter at TheBoatGalley.com. In 1924, a young man named Harvey Gamage left his apprenticeship at East Booth Bay Boatyards in Maine to set up business for himself. Between 1924 and 1976, when he died, Mr. Gamage's yard oversaw the construction and launching of more than 288 boats. In 1973, the shipyard sent the last of her sailing vessels down the rails. Named after the yard's founder, this ship was the Harvey Gamage, a U.S. Coast Guard-certified 131-foot wooden gaff-rigged topsail schooner. Today's guest is John Barry, who grew up determined not to let his life waste away in the confines of a dusty office. As a young man, John left his native North Carolina looking to find work in the shipyards of Annapolis, Maryland. He landed a job as a grunt in a boatyard, and from there, doors started to crack open. While working as a broker, he ended up scoring a job on the Harvey Gamage. John worked his way up, quickly becoming the captain of this storied vessel. In today's episode, Captain Barry sits down with me near his home on the shores of the Intracoastal Waterway in North Carolina to share tales, good and bad, of years gone by captaining a wooden tall ship in the Caribbean Sea. So, cue the band. Let's do this. This is Seabird. Stories from Remarkable People. I've known you a while, but I don't know. Did you grow up sailing? No, no, I didn't. When when did you get in? What what was your introduction into sailing? Um, well, you could just say the water. Every summer we'd spend the summers at the beach. Um, and it wasn't until I had graduated college and was working with uh, a company which was called Carolina Power and Light in uh, up around Henderson, North Carolina. And um, some of my friends had sailboats and took me out, you know, in a little blue jay or whatever. And it just clicked. I just, it just clicked. I, it was not intentional or what. Um, I, I got. And my, you said that was that was post college. Yeah, that was like 1970, 19, 1972 maybe. Um, and that, yeah, post college. I was in working with Carolina Power and Light a couple of years, working with them, and um, it just clicked. A friend of mine had a blue jay, and then um, I bought. He said, "Hey, John, there's no." windmill for sale and that's a like a 16 foot um, design boat 
And so they had a good fleet in, in Car Lake, and I just started racing because what else is there to do in Henderson, North Carolina? Lake racing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, when people say, how do you learn to sail or whatever, I think that's probably one of the best ways to learn to sail, sail trim and what have you, is to race, even though I didn't know what I was doing uh, <laughs> at all. I couldn't understand why I wasn't winning, because my mainsail was totally blown out. <laughs> and none of them would tell me that your main is blown out. That's why you do so terrible. So uh, you've led me into a, a, a question I wasn't planning on asking, but I've, I've cruised with cruisers who never raced and I've cruised with cruisers who have raced and I think they sail very very differently. I'm wondering how starting out lake racing impacted how you think you sailed later in life. Maybe less on the Harvey Gamage and more on your own smaller boats and I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. The, the racers that I've cruised with constantly adjusting <laughs> sail and adjusting lines and adjusting this and adjusting that and and I am whether right or wrong sort of of the uh, set it and forget it team if I'm making five or six knots and the boat seems balanced I'm happy I don't mess with it I'm curious other than than learning the dynamics of how the boat moves how do you think lake sailing impacted your style of sailing and cruising later on? Well, I'm with you, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, I've got friends that never raced that were constantly adjusting things, and I found that they usually slowed themselves down, you know, wiggling the tiller, adjusting the sails and stuff like that all the time. That, that momentum, that inertia they're throwing out there actually slows the boat down a little bit. No, I'm with you. I, I basically, um, what I learned basically with lake sailing and dinghy sailing, you know, from windmills to lasers to... Um, is the sail adjustment when not that you brought it up but on the gamage i'd noticed the guys that would brought up sailing learning to sail on the gamage they you know you'd be off the wind broad reaching and some of these skippers some of these the crew would have the sails you know tight you know harden up and they're you know like, you have to let the sails out to get going right you know and they they never caught on to that because you know in a small dinghy or a small boat the least amount of the least amount of adjustment, you see immediate results. While on a big ship, even a, you know a thirty foot Morgan, you wouldn't see it so fast um, as 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 you would in a dinghy. Sure. And so that was that was basically my my background there. And it wasn't so much um, the the lake racing. It was just racing and learning that you know at least the slightest adjustment. I remember one time when I was racing midwinters in the laser and. Um, you know, I was broad reaching, and I just, my, my, my feet were underneath the hiking strap, and I just slipped. My one foot just slipped like that, and I kind of jiggled the boat, and the boat immediately jumped up on a plane and took off. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, you know, just little things like that would... would um, Learning the nuance. Yeah, exactly. But I never, I never did, um, and when you think about racing, I never did nothing about spinnakers, nothing about, you know... Um, that that type of racing or sailing at all right um, because i never maybe set a spinnaker once or twice on a flying flying scott or something like that, that was it. once or twice more yeah. than me so you're working for north carolina, carolina power, power and light or carolina power and light. power and light and big into sailing i uh i did the 
fall, yakety yaks, whatever it was, in the windmills. And I was up during the boat show in 1972 or three, I can't remember which, and I was just handing out my um, my resumes. And you were still was... living in North Carolina yeah, at this time. So right. did you go to the sailboat show to go to the show or to find work in boating? Uh, to uh, both. I think we had the midwinters or the fall series for um, the CBYRA, um, which was all the um, different model, one design, sailboats. And, um, and I just, when I was up there, I just brought my resume and went around the whole show and handing out. Um, what, kind of, what kind of people, what kind of booths, to whom would you anybody, hand your resume? Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, was on your, what was on your resume that you thought would help you get a job in the boating world? <laughs> Just ambition and spirit. I had nothing. I couldn't even tie a bowling. <laughs> and um, I, I haven't told this story to anybody. But, um, and so maybe a week or so later, I get a call from Joan Willis, I believe, at Whitehall Yacht Yard. And so we need, we need a yard worker, if you're interested. And that's basically hauling, blocking boats, scraping, you know, power washing, pulling the boats out, moving around under your own power, just from t piling to piling. And I said, absolutely. I was up there the next week, found a um, safe buddy over in Alexandria until I found a house over at Padickery, which is uh, near the Bay Bridge. And um, um, you had a car. Had a car. Had well, a, you had a 1973 job. Vega wagon. <laughs> 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 Loved it. I was in seventh heaven. So, um, a lot of the brokers would launch or their uh, commission their boats at Whitehall, and I just happened to one couple, um, the Smiths from Bayard Agency. I met them, and you know me, Mr. Yakety Yak. <clears throat> and she said, "Well, we need a we need a." Uh, a a broker on the weekends, just a temporary broker, if you'd be interested. And I thought, oh, what else? You know, here I've come from Podunk, North Carolina, and now I'm a yacht broker in Annapolis, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> I was in seventh heaven. After after our sales on, after our work on the weekend, we'd go over to what was called the Upper upper Crust, which I now I think is Reardon, so I'm not too sure what it is now, mm -hmm. um, and have our martinis. And then I'd go back and work in the yard the following week and I was in seventh heaven. So you were you were working in the yard Monday to Friday? Right. And what does I know what yacht brokers do, but what does a weekend yacht broker do? Well I was um were you answering phones or were you actively searching oh, out listings for boats or exactly. were you taking people around? Yes. All of the above. Exactly. Um I was um just for brokerage. They wouldn't let me touch the new stuff. Right. And I was like gung ho. I had a little little skiff I would take row people out in the skiff to look at the boats and stuff like that and I'd go looking for um, listings I, I, I like to tell this story um, I went over towards um, Back Creek in the very very back mm -hmm. which there's this old broken down um, rickety piling uh, where Bert Jabin had a, a rickety little second yard or third yard and I was down there just looking for boats, and, and that's what I love. That you know, I have to say, working in a boat yard was heaven. I get to see the underbodies, get to smell the the, the, the smell of uh, nasty mussels and seaweed coming off the boats when we power spray them. It was like heaven to me. 
Anyway, the old I'm bird comes you. down, get out of here, son. You can't you can't be walking docks getting lessons here. So that's one of the first things that happened to me in Annapolis. I got kicked out by Bert Jabin <laughs> in Annapolis. <laughs> I've been to Bert Jabin's yacht uh, yard, to his boat yard. I've never met Bert Jabin. I don't know if he's still with us. No, he's not. But, not. but uh, it was, it's his the yard now is the first one you'd come to before the big yard. Uh, it's on the left. But um, so that didn't deter me. And uh, the, to fast forward, the couple I was working with the Bayard Agency, they got they were going to get married on this schooner called, it was called Harvey Gamage. And it had spent one first winter in the Caribbean. And the owner, Eben Wickham, was coming back through Annapolis. And uh, Eric and Rosalie Smith had made plans of getting married on the schooner. And of course, being um, assistant yacht broker, I got to tag along. And of course, Aside from the marriage and all that hoopla and going down to see the gamage every night, um, when I got off work, um, maybe it was it wasn't anything that I, I didn't know anything about a schooner. I didn't know a, a peak halyard from a throat halyard from whatever from a jig, jig halyard. And uh, so Evan said, "Well, we we need a, we have an opening in the Caribbean this winter." if you'd like to be a deckhand and of course I jumped right on that and uh, to tell you a short long story uh, I met Eben up again and uh, this is in 74 with uh, America's Cup I sailed a got a Cal 27 with a friend of mine from Annapolis to Maryland up to Rhode Island and uh, <laughs> that was a long process that's a significant <laughs> little in a little, in that little yeah. dinky engine that quit running most of the time and um, so I sealed it up, um, and I got my position on the gamage. I, I flew down to St. Thomas, where the gamage was supposed to be, and it wasn't there. And I walked the docks all night, then finally <laughs> I found a place like Windward Passage was the hotel then. And the next night I stayed in, um, um, I can't think of the name of it. It's not the, um, and I happened to meet the, then would, future uh, delivery captain down island. So anyway, um, it happened that Gamage didn't have a plimsoll mark. Um, I don't on, know what that is. Is, is, is. For commercial vessels, is that little round thing on the side that tells you you can't load it up or down any okay. further in whatever season or waters you're in. Okay. And Evan was beside himself. He was really, excuse my expression, pissed um, because he had to haul out in Puerto Rico. Um, and um, so I flew over in the Goose from St. Thomas to Puerto Rico and to give you an idea the setup of how my winter was going to be I was the last guy on the boat uh, everybody else had sailed down with the gamage and as we began our passage south to the Lesser Antilles um, my, my basic job is besides being deckhand, I'd be a chain locker flaking the, the rusty chain, uh, washing the dishes every night uh, and morning and afternoon and doing the laundry, cleaning the heads, <laughs> making up the beds <laughs> and, any, and, and, make, and whatever else grunt thing, you know, the last person on the boat would do, you know, last crew member signing on. And were you in heaven? 
Yes. Oh, I, I didn't know any different. You, you, know? Were, you were how old at this point? I was pretty mm-hmm. old. I was probably 28 or 29. Okay. Um, were, there, were there crew on the boat that were ahead of you in the hierarchy and younger than you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Many of them, perhaps? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to back up. So you're in Annapolis. You're working in the yard. You're brokering on the weekends. And the gamage was... In Annapolis for this wedding? Yes. Okay. So you get to see it and sort of that's that's how you broke into it. And then they offered you the, uh, as I believe you called it, the uh, the deck ape job. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they said, okay, well, the gamage is going to be down in the Virgins. Come on down. What went through your head when you got to the Virgin Islands and the boat that you were supposed to work on simply wasn't there? <laughs> Did, did, oh, I, were I you that. worried that it was all a ruse? No, oh, no, 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 no. Because I knew Evan. I, I got to know Evan from the gamage being in uh, Annapolis for maybe three or four weeks. I, no, in my naive mind, I walked from downtown Charlotte Molly to what is Yacht Haven or the West Indies dock probably four times that night <laughs> and ask anybody I could listen. And if... Now you couldn't do that. You'd be killed. <laughs> Pardon me. Have you seen my boat? <laughs> yes. Yep, sure have it. <laughs> so I finally gave up and got a room at the Windward Passage, which is now, I don't, it's still there, but I don't remember the, what the okay. name is now. Um, the next day, I finally went over to what they would call home port with Bob Smith and um, was asking about the damage then. What's going on? Where is the damage? And it just so happened with good fortune um, the delivery captain, Dave Iredell, was in there and he heard me asking about it. And he says, oh, it's over in Puerto Rico. What, what's, with, what's with you? I said, well, I'm a crew. I'm supposed to be on the boat and was looking for it. Well, it won't be here for another week. You know, it's, it's yakety, 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 yak. So um, luckily, Dave um, took me in with a, another um, person. Really cute Nell, I can't think of her last name, from Rhode Island. She had sailed down on a beautiful swan called uh, Dove with uh, Eric and John Green. So we all were like the, the three musketeers on Dave's old sailboat. And we would to pay for our, our, our room. He, we would do odd jobs on the different boats he had. Now you got to realize, I didn't know any different, oh, any different than anything else. This is like still in seventh heaven loved it can't you know i still had the log from that time and i think the most impressive thing is the people were wonderful the the sailors were wonderful charlotte amali is a nasty dirty place right and um and you can't say that today in any of the comments you'd have on on the social media or you'd be and so we hung out for a week and then we all flew over in separate or they flew over I guess on the goose separately and said you can't come over with me because I don't want to think that we're, we're we know each other when we get to the gamage so I flew over on the goose and um, I think I sat in the, in the co-pilot seat where I had to crank up the wheel I might be wrong. How was that flight? That was awesome. Sounds exciting and yeah, it's all right. It was. Yeah it was. I mean like an boats and, and flying yeah so um so you get there and of course I'm kind of like a new child on LSD I didn't, you know, everything is wonderful, you know, just, I, it, whatever goes, goes, I loved it, you know, it, it was just, um, 
absolutely fantastic. Sailing the Caribbean, um, nice. sailed from Puerto Rico down through um, uh, Culebra and then down island all the way down to uh, Grenada. For so tell me about your first open ocean sail on the Gamage, which I guess was then if you were heading well, that down wasn't to really, or Antilles. That wasn't really open ocean. Well, we would, we'd island hop, you island. know, from let's say um, Virgin Gora, then on down to maybe St. Bart's or something like that, and then down to, uh, then over to uh, St. Kitts. And um, it wasn't really, we really didn't have any weather to speak of. Other so than, do you remember the, the first time that you actually did open absolutely. ocean sail on the boat? Yeah, I do. Um, I do. Um, it was the following spring when one of the crew members looked at me and said, you've never done this before, have you? <laughs> and it went through my mind, I go, no, I haven't. <laughs> but, you know, we had, Evan had a delivery crew, um, and we sailed from St. We provisioned in St. Thomas. Unfortunately, it was during Carnival and Easter, and everything was closed for a week. Um, and um, I've, I've got it all written down in my little journal, which I think is fantastic, because it was a very, very transparent, the goods and the bads about the whole season. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, uh, candy laced with good, good thoughts. And I just said, you know, what in the hell am I doing here sometimes? And, um, so, you know, at, during the winter. Um, so we s off to Bermuda and about 10 miles out of Bermuda, we got, it wasn't a microburst or it was just a wicked squall. And we had all three lowers set and it blew everything out seem to seem and so we and I thought it was wonderful you know just everything was like white well cat. that was actually a question I had I was wondering if your reaction to stormy weather changed over time and if as you got more familiar with storms at sea if they got better or worse got worse <laughs> because there is that element where in the beginning it's an adventure yeah absolutely you know, like accidentally yeah. fishtailing in the rain in your car when you're 16 and you get out <laughs> laughing and when you do it at, at 50 you get out going well it was horrible yeah exactly no that's exactly true um you hit the nail on the head um I read my accounts now, and I thought it was fantastic. You know, white caps, wind, uh, sails fogging, ripping from leech to um, luff, luff to leech. Um, it was wonderful. I thought it was great. We all tucked it in, and we just kind of motored. It took about another five or six hours to go those 10 miles. And then we spent the next week or so, we took all the sails off and took them to the loft to have them repaired. And we had to go in and help push the sails through the, the machines. And um, that the learning never stops. Yeah. This okay, I have questions for you about that storm. But first, I have to cut to a quick break. I am talking with John Barry, former crew and captain of the Harvey Gamage, and we will be right back. Seabird will continue after this short break. Whether it's learning the right way to tie off to a mooring ball or mastering how to eat well, even though you have a just stupidly, ridiculously tiny refrigerator on your boat, theboatgalley.com is where you need to go to learn how to make life on a boat better, easier, more successful, and more comfortable. It makes no difference if you've lived aboard for 10 years or if boating is just a dream for you. 
Carolyn at The Boat Galley has answers to everything you need to know to learn how to live on a boat or to simply learn how to boat better. What you need to do is this. You need to sign up for her newsletter. I have been on that list since 2013. Go to theboatgalley.com, G-A-L-L-E-Y, theboatgalley.com. Click on subscribe to the newsletter and toss your email address in there. It is free. It is informative. And Carolyn is not going to spam you and is not going to sell your email address. You will be on your way. Every journey has a first step. Take your first step at theboatgalley.com. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Herlig and I'm sitting with John Barry, the former captain of the sailing schooner, the Harvey Gamage. And we are sitting at the shores of the Intracoastal Waterway in lovely Oak Island, North Carolina. And it's a beautiful day. We've got boats in the background and skydiving planes flying over and all kinds of excitement. So you were talking about that first storm at sea as you were approaching Bermuda. Um, And you were maybe not brand new, but still relatively new to it all at this point. And certainly a big difference between day hops in the Caribbean, in the the leeward islands and all that, in open ocean sailing in a storm. A, did you say you were a mere like 10 miles or so out of Bermuda when it hit? That is awfully close. So I'm wondering... What went through your head, other than the simple of excitement, when that storm hit? Nothing. What did you? <laughs> <laughs> what What did you have to do, and what was the flurry of activity around you on the boat? What did the people who'd been doing this for a while scramble to do um, when the you know what hit the fan and? sails started shredding and and it was obvious i would assume that adjustments had to be made so what was happening around you if in fact you were new and stood there holding onto the rail smiling <laughs> uh, well we um if anybody knows the well the gaff rig schooners that you have your halyards coiled up and tied on uh just on on chain plates or not chain plates or on the um, shrouds or whatever um the bar what um, and so what we usually have to do when we know we're going to drop sail, and for all you old schoonerites out there, I apologize for being so naive in saying it, but what you have to do is you can fake down the sail, uh, fake down the uh, uh, halyard. Mm-hmm. In other words, just in like little figure eight knots all the way around. So when you um, drop your gaff and your um, um, throat, it, it runs off evenly, you sure. know, with just with, no with twists, no, no twists. coils. Well, if you just drop the coil, it would it would bind up, perhaps. Yes. So that's what we had to do. We had to fake down the sails or fake down the halyards, and then at that point, there wasn't any sails left. Uh, it was just gaffs swinging wildly in the wind, and um, of course, that. How much wind do you think there was? Um, well, the gamage is designed from U.S. Coast Guard design that it, it could take hurricane um, force winds and, and not take a knockdown. So that was basically her fuse. And the sails were two years old uh, at that point. Um, and so that was a fuse there. 
rather than are going over like in the Pride or some of the other uh, tall ships that have been lost at sea where the rail would be buried and water would come in through the hatches and down she goes. Um, the Gamage, you know, that was her fuse basically. So basically we saw, and I don't know how long, um, the sails blow out, gaffs swing wildly. We went forward to uh, take down the halyards the, to the fore main. And obviously the, the staysail was already blown out, the jumbo rather. And, um, um, and that was just, got the, that was really no big deal. Just had the downhaul on that. And then we just got the sails down. And then as we were motoring in, I can remember Evan saying, well, let's get the sails tucked in neatly so we don't look like a rag muffin coming into the cut <laughs> in St. George's. <laughs> and you got to realize, like, well, this is like we do this every time. I mean, this is the way you go north, you know, you sails blow out and you get them fixed and you keep on going. Well, no, of course, that's not the case. But um, I was just was in pure wonderment. I just went with, the, went with the flow and I didn't know what to do except I just followed what everybody else did. Were like, they barking orders at you? No, not really. We had a first mate that was, um, um, he, he, he had a lot of, lot of you know, um, background. And the two other crews, um, of course, they were probably way ahead of me um, as far as um, the gamage because they had sealed the gamage down from New England mm -hmm. to uh, the Caribbean. So, um, so we got into Bermuda and um, uh, I still, ha yeah, I still have a picture of Eben sewing up the staysail uh, jumbo <laughs> there at the at the at the dock where the the uh, liners would come in in, in St. George's, and then we were off to New England, and um, with the sails, you know, sewn up and patched and what have you. And I remember the first couple weeks when we sailed in that summer, we sailed out of uh, Thomaston, Maine going up the um, St. George's River. I'm not sure. I believe it's the St. George's River. But for the first two weeks, it was foggy everywhere and couldn't see a thing. Didn't know where or what. But that was wonderful. You know, sailing we'd at no gamage on, we'd sail in and dock at the old coal bin in Thomaston. And there was a bridge ahead of us. Um, and how we would turn the boat around to go back out, we would, whatever the, um, whenever the tide changed, um, we would simply have to line, you know, just work the boat around through our, for the dock lines. So, and that's how we, would it be like two o'clock in the morning or? Uh, so at slack tide, you would simply, all the deckhands would literally manhandle the boat. Manhandle around, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't slack tide, it was just like when the, actually the whole, like tide coming in, uh, we had tide with us, but when the tide went out, of course, you had the river flow um, and actually turned the boat for you. So right. we did that every weekend and, you know, loved it. And uh, it was just, Thomason was a really neat, neat historical town then. And there was a little, um, business there they had a, the coal bend where they had a little bar and restaurant and the piperonuses had bought that and they had some gift shops and stuff like that and we got to know the family there and still in contact with them so did you eventually when you as you were a full-time crew on the gamage would you in the summers stay in maine with the boat or was it seasonal for you although it was ongoing 
Yeah, for the first, um, let's say, first three summers, I was on the gamut. Um, and then in 77, um, I was lucky enough to, um, no, actually 76, um, I was off the gamage that summer because I was given the opportunity to take a 50-foot, 48-foot Concordia catch uh, from St. Thomas to Bermuda and picked up Greenwich Country Day high school kids, five of them, to do the, uh, the race from Bermuda to Newport. And, um, and that was a lot of fun. And then, from, then we did the whole op-sale thing. Uh, from Bermuda, I'm not from um, from Rhode Island to New York, the the parade, then back up to Boston, where I got off, and then I spent the rest of the summer on the gamage that summer, and that was that was just like it was happening so fast I couldn't really appreciate it fast enough, um, and uh, I think a lot of I must have a good guardian angel or uh, whatever because I remember on we call this Concordia catch, 50 foot, with a cook and five crew. We were leaving New York after the after the parade of sail and all the the events. Um, um, I was waiting for the tide to change, going up the East River and Hell's Gate, and I'd sail a little bit, turn the engine, and and then turn the you know then turn the engine on and motor and then back and forth four or five times that night and waiting for the tide to change. So we motor through the Hell's Gate up East River to Greenwich um, with no problem. We came in late at night, it's no big deal. The next morning um, I wanted to crank up the, uh, the old Perkins and it wouldn't start. The starter had gone out. Now if you can only imagine if the starter had gone out while I was you know, off and on, back tacking or just jockeying, jockeying back and forth. You know, off off of Manhattan, it would be there wasn't a sea tow back then um, <laughs> or tugboat U.S. And I just think, oh my God, how lucky can you be to have the starter go out there? I had a guy come out from Greenwich um, and had it repaired or a new starter within within a day. But I just think about that, how lucky. I was. I think anyone, <clears throat> excuse me, I think anyone on any sailing boat from my little 30 footer up to your schooners could look back at what they've done and fill a pretty thick book with what ifs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and some of them happen. And we don't really appreciate it at the time, but a lot of this, I think, is just reacting to when that one out of a hundred what-ifs does happen. I know. When you lose an engine in a cut or whatever it may be. How big was the crew on the gamage? The crew, we had um, seven crew, had the uh, captain, mate, two cooks, and um, three deckhands for the most part. And how, how were you able to move up through those ranks as quickly as nobody else wanted to do it <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> okay 
Well, I can remember uh, when I've the, met it, people that work on crude boats <laughs> who might say the same, who would, <laughs> yeah. who would uh, come visit me in the evening and have a rum and, and yeah. <laughs> sing their woes, wondering why they had the job they did. Okay, yeah. so you were you were deckhand. You moved up. The uh, the following in the end of the winter, end of the summer of '75, um, I'd ask Evan if I could stay on because we weren't going back down to the Grenadines. Uh, we were going to um, the British Virgin Islands, or the U.S., the, the, the Virgin Islands. We'd be sailing out of St. Thomas off, off of the waterfront. And um, I said, yeah, that's great. I love that. I hadn't spent any time in the Virgins. Um, I, I got kind of tired of the Grenada and the Grenadines because um, we didn't really have a lot of people on the boat. We sailed, we sailed through in concert with uh, the Holiday Inns. And the most we might have five or six passengers. And the crew would just kind of get on each other's nerves <laughs> after a while. As happens, small and, quarters. Yeah, and um, so anyway, um, I can remember, okay, I accepted a job and I go, oh God, now I've got to work more. <laughs> was, this now, is now I got to figure out what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so was this the, the captain's job or just, or an intermediate? Oh, oh no, 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 I, I was just the first mate. Okay. I was just the first mate. So you worked your way up to first mate. Yeah, first mate for, um, I was first mate until 19, the winter of 1977. And you were still the old man of the boat? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even the captains in the Caribbean were younger than me. <laughs> were, the, were the captains who would run the gamage through its wintertime charters in the Caribbean, they were different than the captain and crew that would actually deliver the boat from New England absolutely, to the Caribbean? Absolutely. Yeah, totally different. So they would fly down and do their wintertime gig and right. then they were done. Yeah. You crossed over and kind of did both halves right. of that. Did the, exactly. the wintertime crewing in the Caribbean, but also did the Atlantic Ocean runs and, back and, and forth, right? Because a lot of people just, for the same reason they do it today, I just, I loved it and I just, you know, I can remember Eben saying um, um, he questioned my mental health wanting to stay on. <laughs> because he says, you know, there's, we, don't, we don't have any compensation for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> and, but he was, Eben undoubtedly, Eben Wickham um, was undoubtedly the best person I've ever worked with in my life. He was, um, everybody loved him. He was a great owner, captain, boss. And um, he just made you feel very welcome, you know. And I can remember some of the things I screwed up. And I'll tell you real quick that I think he knows because I've mentioned it sometimes in one of the social medias. When we remained that first summer um, he, to sweeten up the bilge, the engine room bilge, he would open up the little piss hole for the seacock uh, and fill the bilge up. To, you know, get some fresh seawater in there, then we'd flush it out. Fresh, nasty water. Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. And um, um, so we were anchored probably, I don't know, Vinyl Haven or something like that. And um, and I suppose it turned the seacock off at, you know, in an hour. Well, I got, I had to go pick up the passengers somewhere or something, and I forgot to do it. And um, so when we got ready to get underway, hit the button, the bell would go off and nothing. <laughs> the, the bilge water had come up over the starter and killed the starter. Oh. 
Now, I never told him that. <laughs> At the time? At the time. I don't think I ever told it to him in his face. <laughs> um, and so, even more remarkable, I can still remember getting the, the big ship out of our little tight anchorages. We had a little 16-foot main skiff with a six-horsepower Johnson that we would tow the boat out till we set sail. And we finished, finished. I remember towing out of there, out of Camden, and we finished the, um, the weekend off, I mean the week off with that. And um, then another time, real quickly, um, to show well, you- hold on, wait a minute. What happened with the, the flooded bilge? How high, how high did it get? Who figured it out? I don't know. I and stayed away from the whole you thing. <laughs> you were in your clothing locker, not to be seen. Really? Really? Oh. <laughs> See, you can't even tell the end of that story. No. Um, well, so you were in this time living what many an armchair quarterback sitting at their desk at their job in the States or, or in their living room at home on the weekends. You were living what probably looked like the dream life. Absolutely, absolutely. Were there times when the dream life wasn't so dream-like? Were there days when you rolled over and thought, Jesus, John, <laughs> why didn't you just keep the Carolina P&L job? You could have had benefits by now. You wouldn't be getting beat to death in cold, rainy storms. Or, or, or was it all good? Well, going back to my first season, this is what, to that effect, um, our first season in um, the Grenadines, we were anchored in uh, Young Island Cut, St. Vincent and Young Island, um, and we would have, we call them scratch bands, come out to the boat and play for the guests, mm -hmm. okay? And so it was my job to pile, at the end of the event, evening, they all piled in the 16-foot uh, dinghy was like a big tub is probably as big as your cockpit um, and take them ashore. This is the band and their instruments and everything. So I am... You were like a roadie. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm <laughs> taking... This is in the cut, Young Island. <laughs> okay. Between Young Island and, you know, um, Mariner's Rendezvous, St. Saint Vincent there. Um, and I'm just motoring through and all the, all the boats are anchored. You know, everything's fine. And I'm motoring through, then all of a sudden, which made it even worse for me, to my starboard bow comes a boat right at me and hits us, sinks the dinghy with all the staff, with all the crew, with all the um, band, with their instruments. And I can remember, luckily the boat had flotation so it didn't sink all the way. Um, and luckily we got everybody back in the boat and ashore. So but this, it, this was, it wasn't without, I can't swim, help, you know, and all this commotion going on. And that was like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, am I going to get fired or what? But what had happened was the captain of this yacht was stealing the owner's boat and he was motoring out of <laughs> against you know you know against the flow of the other boats anchored there so I was looking at sterns and all of a sudden see a bow coming at me he had no running lights on 
of course he hit me in the starboard um, bow which made it my fault if he had his running lights on and I didn't see him and as it turned out he was at fault yak 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 and um, I remember just waiting like oh god what's the consequence going to be when the captain calls the captain was um, um, Simon Bridges uh, then an uh, English guy that had the captain that winter and first winter I was on board and um, so I never heard any repercussions never said you know never got nothing the only thing I heard was Evan had to pay $100 100 US dollars um, for the band equipment in 1974 75 and that was one of those things like what am I doing you know like what is kind of like you have to think that people with desk jobs don't often feel that way. <laughs> no, no, like, and I felt stupid. Right. Because here I am, and I didn't hear any snickering or laughing, or I remember of the crew, like, um, and everybody, all the crew jumped in and helped. And we got, from what I remember, we got everybody ashore fine. There weren't any, any casualties, thank God. Um, but it was pretty terrifying. I think if... If being on the water teaches all of us any one thing, it's how close we always are, no matter how conservative and careful you are, how close we always all are on the water to being in some sort of disaster. Absolutely, absolutely. And cause doesn't really matter a lot when it happens. Political affiliation doesn't matter when it happens. When you see someone else on the water in trouble, it's just impossible to look at it and not see in your head, wow, that could be me. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And, and I think it makes this, this, this boating theater maybe not forgiving, but at least a, 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 they, they don't hold court while they're helping you. No. <laughs> they just wait until it's all over and then they go out to the bar with you and get drunk and just give you <laughs> royal shit for what you did. I never got that, luckily. And um, I never got, of course it'd be glaring, but no one ever said anything to me about it at all. Um, I'm, I don't know why, why they didn't. Um, never heard anything from Evan about it. But let me tell you another quick story of Evan to show you kind of the guy he is, owner. Um, years later, and this is probably, I say, 1980, 79 or 80, or 1980, um, we were, to give you a scenario, we would come in on Saturday morning to the fuel dock at Okay on the inside of the fuel dock. And um, you have to realize both like Enterprise or some of your bigger maxi yachts would be anchored inside the, the fuel dock on, on the slips. So there was no era to, um, there's no era to, in your judgment. No room for error. So sure. we'd come in, um, the boat back to port, the wind was blowing us off the dock. And I always had butterflies. You had to come in. I always had get the um, the bow line on first, or not bow line, spring line on first. Then I'd use the tender to hit my stern to push the boat in. Well, before my first first season with uh, the mate, and um, I actually it was my fault because I didn't tell them what I wanted for her to do or her to do. And she was the best mate I ever had, by the way. Um, with the cat heads that stick out, 
I said, you need to tell me how far I'm off the pilings of the dock. I need to go this way or I'm okay or whatever. But as it turned out, the, the, the owner of the, the, the then Apple door was tying up at the end of the dock where we're coming into and I got kind of flustered, Carol got kind of flustered and I came in and I tore off the cat head with the anchor and everything went flying in the water. And luckily it didn't hit the guy in the dinghy that was in our way. He shouldn't have been there. Um, and um, by fortune, I had a good friend of mine. Chuck Ryan was, had come down with me that year on my boat. And he was on that cruise with us, that first cruise. And it basically wiped out the whole cat head, which is basically a bunch of two-by-fours put together or maybe four-by-four, whatever. Um, so basically, um, we just went over the lumber yard and he made up another cat head and hung it and it was fine. So I went in and called Eben. I didn't tell him before I did all this. I went in and called Eben. I said, Eben, I coming in the dock, uh, had a little kerfuffle, and um, I tore the cat head off the starboard side. And rather than having him yelling and screaming and pulling his hair out at me like a lot of owners would do or, or captains would do, um, his comment was, I'm surprised the other captains haven't done that already. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That was it. <laughs> um, and that shows you the kind of person he was. He just took it in his stride. He had a chance to really jump down my throat about being so stupid and like a dumb, dumb move. He didn't. He said, well, I'm surprised other captains hadn't done it. Of course, the boat is now probably seven years old. And she'd been sailing nonstop winter and summer. Had some battle scars. Yeah. So um, that gives you an idea of what, what a great, great person Evan That's is. That's fantastic. So I'm talking today with John Barry, former captain of the Harvey Gamage crew and captain of that boat among others and uh, I've got some more questions for him that we'll dive into right after this Welcome to Bridge Boys Bridges. My name is Jeremy and this is my partner in crime Andreas Papas That's right, we're here to introduce you to the podcast that takes you on a whirlwind tour of the world's coolest bridges Yeah, we'll be exploring the history culture and engineering that goes into them so we hope you'll join us on our exploration of all these beautiful bridges. And be sure to subscribe to the Bridge Boys podcast on your favorite podcast player. Yeah, we'll be dropping some new bridge knowledge every Monday starting August 9th. So we'll talk to all of y'all then. Bridges. This is Seabird, and I'm talking today with John Barry, former captain of the schooner Harvey Gamage. Um, I'm going to switch it up on you a little bit now. Um, and this whole section comes with a lot of disclaimers. Uh, th <laughs> these are, I think, sensitive questions, but I'm really curious. So as I understand it, your father was a pilot, a fighter pilot, a pilot. That's right. In World War II. Right, correct. And died in action in the Pacific Theater? That's correct. How old was he when he died? He was 28 years old and he was as um, and that was old for a fighter pilot for he was a Hellcat um, fighter pilot uh, they flew off the carrier um, the Essex and but most of the uh, pilots even from the Avengers the Helldivers and the Hellcats they were all in their early 20s most of them and um, although that didn't that didn't really affect anything at all but yeah he was 28 when um, he was killed in action when he was strafing a trawler off of uh, northeast um, Mindanao. Forgive me, what is strafing? Uh, shooting. 
He, okay. Like there's a trawler, okay. and he was, they had 50, um, with his with his guns, he was just shooting shooting the trawler okay. uh, along with his division. And um, I get a lot of that in the book I'm writing, like, well, what does that mean? And I finally have told the people that were kind of uh, editing, I said, well, just Google it. No, <laughs> but no, I did. I did. A lot of people ask that. What is strafing? Sure. But well, so uh, so he was twenty eight, and yes. and you were safely back home. And how old were I you? I was not born yet. You were not born yet. I was born a month later. Okay. Um, do you have siblings? No, no siblings. You're an only child. Um, th- this is, believe it or not, all sailing related. Um, so you grew up hearing stories about your father, probably, I would think, rather revered in what he did. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, and I mean that from the heart, this happened to a, a best friend of mine who, who died in a skiing accident while his then wife was pregnant with their second child. Um, and to this day, and, and that kid is pushing 30 now, and to this day, uh, I look at how it's impacted his life, and it's it's big. But what I'm wondering is, do you think the stories of your father and the fact that he died a war hero and all those things, do you think that impacted your view of life and career and what you were and weren't willing to accept? Do you think looking at his short life gave you cause to look up and go, no, I, I'm not going to waste my life sitting behind a desk. I don't want to. Or, or, or were you just already wired that way? No, no, you're absolutely correct. That's, uh, I can't believe the observation. That is exactly when, um, and I'll make it quick. You know, I grew it's up okay. in an ideal little town of, of Pinehurst. There's no tape. It's electronic. I can record okay. you forever. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, grew up in Pinehurst and went through the rigmarole of finishing college. My uncle... Um, got me a job with his um, fraternity brother who was an advertising manager at Carolina Power and Light. And uh, when I finished college, um, I went, went into Carolina Power and Light as, a, as a, a salesman. And, you know, I'm totally oblivious to, you know, whatever. Um, and, and I mean that, seriously, oblivious. I was just taking life day to day as it came along. and. Um, and so after, let's just say, I spent four years in doing what um, life's protocol expects you to do. What you're supposed to do. Yes. And, um, and then, to be quite honest, you know, I noticed, like, God, all I'm doing is working to pay off my credit card. Um, we, I seem to be going around in circles. Um, I'm not really feeling like I'm gaining anything in life. And through, at the same time, I'm seeing this huge interest in sailing. I mean, it, it grabbed me, unbelievable, which I would never have guessed. It wasn't something that said, I'm going to go sailing and do this. It just grabbed me, and I just loved it. Um, I said, you know, I'm just, and that saying about my father, I said, well, you know, my father died when he was 28. I'm about the same age, and he missed out so much of his life. I'm not going to have the same thing being stuck in a desk for the rest of my life. Um, and um, I have other little nuances too, but I won't go into it, um, that, that led to that. And um, 
that's when probably the summer of probably 70, 73, I decided I'm getting out. Um, I moved out of my house and rented a room to pay off all my debt, credit card, basically, um, pay off my, the only, only debt I had was my monthly payment on my 1973 Vega wagon. On that Vega. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so the next thing people ask is, why didn't you ever get married? Hmm. Well, I would never ask that. I know, I know. But anyway, I get, I've got a friend in Wilmington that she kids me about that all. Why didn't you get married? And, um, but going back in that, I, I was engaged in 1969. And uh, this is, I was probably about 24, 25. And um, she was a couple years younger. And it was a summer romance. And um, she just basically swept me off my feet. And... Um, a couple months later, much to both of ours good fortune, she called it off. And she was still in college and I was out. And um, so that left me like, so now I didn't have any future with a family or getting married or raising kids or anything. Um, that, that was probably in the back of my mind. So now I just kind of floating through my, my job every day and um, and what have you. And so as the sailing turned out, I didn't really have any strings attached to anybody and didn't really have any reason to, um, um, you know, go back ashore. And uh, then as I remember, there's a slight recession then. So there wasn't a lot of jobs available. So that's, that's how I just kind of floated through um, and staying in sailing. Um, right. Like even though Evan said um, he didn't offer any mental health, for me staying on the gamage through the years. He said that was not an option. <laughs> so, so in a way, did you feel almost like you were making sure you lived life? Absolutely. For your dad? Um, like you didn't get your full chance and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do my part and, and pick it up for you? Well, I didn't, I didn't, that was in the back of my mind, absolutely, absolutely. That has always been in the back of my mind. I said, well, he didn't get a chance to live his life, so I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna, and um, sorry. Um, yeah, I didn't mean I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Um, silly question, but were you close with your mother? Oh yes, yes. Okay. I mean, um, and I'm gonna jump ahead or back. Sure. Um, I've just finished the story of his life, mm -hmm. which. Um, so you have written a book yep. about your father's life, right? Which is called. Why can't I? Why can't I? And, and why is that the title? And when do you hope that this book will be out? The title came from, luckily, the title came from his uh, yearbook, Abbey Yearbook, from 1937. And that was his favorite saying as a student at Belmont Abbey. He said, why can't I? It's, it's right there in his yearbook. Right. So that kind of had to be, you know, the name of the the. the the book's name and um, um, and then as it took me about four years to write the book um, off and on and between hurricanes and, and uh, social engagements which weren't many but um, and I just the books at the publishers and it should be released probably late December early January 
That's fantastic. I look forward to getting a copy of it. Absolutely. Um, here's the reason as the uh, parachute jumping plane <laughs> goes over. Here's the reason I asked um, about your closeness with your mother. You were crew and captain on the Gamage in what we'll call in 2020 terms, the good old days. Pre-satellite, pre-cell phone, pre-GPS, pre-all these things. Can you use a sextant? Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is what I'm wondering. Your mother had already lost, um, who was, uh, I'm assuming, maybe only only second to you, the most important person in her life. Who was, yep, true. Who was out, perhaps not voluntarily, it, it makes no difference, um, but, but was out leading, he was out leading, we'll say, a very adventuresome life in the military and, and lost his life as a result of it. And what I wonder is every fall, when the Gamage would leave New England and head south, were you worried that your mother was sitting at home, worried to death about you? Because I would imagine she had no contact from you until you made it to the Virgins or wherever right. you were That's heading. And, and even exactly. then, I wonder how you contacted her. So with what had happened with your father, do you think it was hard on your mother or on you worrying about your mother well, with I, you out being a, in the open sea? Well, I'm sure it was on my mother. Um, you've got to realize I was 28, 29. And 28, 29 year olds don't think about stuff like that. Um, they're just caught up in the moment. Um, of course, my mother was. And, um, but to jump back or forward, I learned so much about both of them in writing the book because I have both their letters um, from that time frame in 1944 and 43 and 42. And um, my mother was very reserved. Um, she was not a big conversationalist with men. Um, obviously, she had to be with women. Um, Where was your mother originally from? She was originally, well, she grew up in Pinehurst. Okay. Um, she was born in Bridgeport. North Carolina. Yeah. So. In Pine, and she grew up in, she was born in Bridgeport. And, um, and they met while she was at Sacred Heart Academy in Belmont, North Carolina, and he was at Belmont Abbey. But um, I thought it may be just me the way she was reacting to me. She was never a big conversationalist. Well, tell me what you did. Right. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. No. Um, and I just took it as, uh, that's the way life is. But it wasn't that true. I was reading these letters that I realized that's just the way she was. My father would even, the letters he'd write were just unbelievable. He, he'd even um, scold her for not being more outspoken or telling her what her feelings were. Because she was very, 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 very reserved in that respect. Um, so yes, I'm sure she did worry a lot. Um, How did you contact her? Did you contact her as quickly as was feasibly possible after you arrived in the Virgins or wherever each year after you sailed down? Was that on your list? I'm here, let mom know I'm here? No. Or no? No, it wasn't. Um, first year in the game. We were all young. Yes. I, I disappeared <laughs> once hiking around Italy and I was having the time of my life, and this was just, I don't know, a couple of months or so. I was living in Switzerland at the time, but took off to Italy for a while. Wow. And I was just having the time of my life and, and finally made it back to northern Italy and was getting ready to hop on a train to go back to Switzerland. And this is back in the early 80s, which seems modern in the big picture, but calling overseas long distance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, we're getting beat up by this wake. Um, but calling overseas long distance back in the early 80s was an undertaking. Absolutely. And I had to go to a call center. Exactly. And I had to put in the phone number and I sat in a chair and waited until the Italian operator let me know, know that she was putting the call through and they would assign you to a particular phone, but they would say, go to, you know, 1B and you would go over yep. there and sit down and pick up the phone and they would get your call through. And I called my mother thinking I was going to get brownie points for days for checking <laughs> in. Um, lo and behold, apparently my mother had been worried sick every day that I'd been gone, wondering where I was and what I was doing. This so is an accent, yeah. Our, our perspectives are a little different with those things. So speaking of technology, as I work towards wrapping up here a little bit, speaking of technology... I'm curious about your opinion of chart plotters, GPS, satellite phones, EPIRBs. Do you think they're fantastic tools that have opened up more sailing to more people because they can? Or do you think these are tools that, uh, no offense to anyone, empower the ignorant and, and let people who maybe don't have any business going off in a boat thinking that it's like a big video game as they look at the dot on the screen and they go trolloping off unprepared and perhaps uh, uh, presenting a danger to themselves or to other people. Everybody I'm else. curious about your perspective on that. Um, I'd say a little bit of both, which is probably you don't want to hear, but um, um, I think for the seasoned sailor that has sailed through just a, a sextant and a chronometer and an RDF finder, um, which were the only tools we had, and, and a not log, you know, as you spin behind the boat and see how many miles you went that day, and keeping your DR, dead reckoning, every hour and every course change. Um, if you have those tools, I think it's wonderful. But for those that um, go out and buy a boat and buy a chart plotter and, all, and GPS and then take off and not have any understanding of what they need for a backup, as like paper, paper, um, paper charts and stuff like that. Just the other, oh, about ten years ago, um, I was in on a crew possibility from Baldhead, and one of the crew said, "Well, we don't really need paper charts, do we?" No, this isn't going to work. I wasn't, I wasn't about to go off with these people. Um, and even now, they're thinking about doing away with your uh, paper charts, yeah. which I think. Um, Maybe I'm just, way, I, of course I am way old school, way old school. I couldn't even, I couldn't even, uh, but I think, I think it's very important to have your paper charts back up, understanding how to do dead reckoning, uh, have, a, have a, a mechanical knot log or whatever. And every, every course change, every hour, every, every time you sneeze, you'd have to log it in. And that made it fun. It kept the, kept the crew going. So, yeah. That's right. Um, part and parcel I, I think, of yeah, the job. I think, yeah, I think it's... Um, um, I think it's nice, but I think it, it takes a lot of the romance away from um, d understanding how to. D I didn't. I don't understand the theory of um, celestial navigation at all. You don't have to. You just have to know how to work it out. <laughs> as long as because you know you, how to yeah, do it. Yeah, and. Um, some of the crew I had, uh, they were my backup going down in, in my own boat in 1980, and, and they, they learned how to do celestial navigation by being my backup and doing, when you're out there and you're like in a washing machine and you're bouncing around and you have someone check your uh, math, um, oops, and uh, 
so but yeah I think um, I think I really enjoyed you know like when you're coming in and you see a mountain overhead or a head coming into either the Caribbean or Puerto Rico and you just hope that is Tortola and not Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, um, well, that is that is a part of it, and I would agree with you. I don't know that there's a, an absolute right and wrong to it. Um, I know that my girlfriend and I just bought a 14-year-old car, but you hop in the car and stick the key in, and you turn, and it starts, and that's it. I mean, there is no... If it's cold, pump the gas pedal three times and hold it down to the floor. But if it's hot, pump it twice. <laughs> but make sure you lay your foot off. My you car is 16 years you old. You don't have to <laughs> shove a, a yeah. screwdriver in the butterfly valve if you flood yeah. the carburetor. And, and I don't know if that means that I, I shouldn't be driving because I'm not getting the full experience out of it. <laughs> I've owned one car that you have that actually had a, a manual crank in the grill. But I will really? admit that that was the backup. Yeah, my 59 TR3 had a starter but also had a manual well, I didn't crank. Know that, yeah. um, times do change That's okay a beautiful car um, indeed it was I missed that car uh, one last question you if you had a magic wand and you could sail any boat you want a little boat by yourself you're fine uh, a little boat by yourself a big boat with crew um, do you know what you would sail and where would you sail it? Is there, is there, uh, I don't like the term bucket list, but is there that, that fantasy sail that you've never gotten to do that in a perfect world, if you could say, okay, I'm, I'm 48 again, I've got this sweet little, you know, Oyster 52 and these four best friends, I want to go from here to here. Um. Well, the I'm just trying to think. Obviously, my I'm going to preface this question with I've only sailed from Maine um, and did did your passages from Maine via Bermuda to um, the the Lesser Antilles. Um, and if you don't know where the Lesser Antilles are, that's that's basically from the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas down to Grenada. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I have to take into effect that my own psych right now, sailing, sailing um, to me those islands, it's kind of like enjoying a walk around your favorite hometown or your hometown. I really just love the Virgins, I love sailing St. Bart's, I love sailing uh, Bequi, Kerikou. Um, the people in Bequi and Kerikou were then in 1980-1970 were wonderful. Um, very, very warm and hospitable, and um, so would you want to go back and do that? Yeah, it'd be fun. That same yeah, one again. Fun. And if I had, what would you sail? I would probably um, with a, a, a two or three crew, or at least three or four crew. Can I get myself on that list? Absolutely. Okay, I, I would like, like, a, like a Swan Forty Three, um, the Sparkman Stevens Swan Forty Three, mm -hmm. with the you know swept-back fin keel and um, skeg rudder, and um, and just have it broken down to make it very manageable. We're not talking about spinnaker and racing gear, just your, because that, that boat's always um, intrigued me. It really has. They, they build a good boat. Yeah. Um, how do you, do you uh, quench your thirst for adventure now? Um, Is it still there? What do you do? Do you get out on boats? Is it all in the writing? It is. Um, 
Well, this is something that's probably not really um, politically correct to say, but um, perfect. You're on the right <laughs> podcast. <laughs> the uh, um, no, I'm I'm very happy. Let's just say if I had a little bit more discretionary income, I would love sailing in the Chesapeake and in New England. I love that. Um, but that being said, here in Oak Island, North Carolina, sailing is not very good. It's confined, um, and it's confined. There's no place to go. Uh, like in um, Annapolis, you can sail over to St. Michael's. You can sail over to Oxford. You can do this or that, you can, whatever. Always need places to go. Uh, go over to Cantler's, get some crabs. Um, you can't do that here. Um, you can go out of your slip and sail back to your slip. And um, so anyway, that being said, um, I just really enjoyed, um, I feel fortunate that when I would take all my stuff from the summer or winter home and drop it in the top drawer of my old bureau in Pinehurst, uh, my dear mother never threw anything away, whether it's omission or commission. And um, so now I have all these old photographs of sailing for, you know, 40 years. And, um, and I've never said this before, it, it sure be, I mean, it's fun to post them on the social media because you sure as hell can't post a picture of you behind a desk and say how much fun this was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you took the path you did. And thank you for joining me to tell your story today. I learned a lot I didn't know before. So John Barry, thank you. Thank you, it's been wonderful. I would talk forever. <laughs> Seabird is made by Boat Radio. It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Thank you to DM Perfection for our theme song, Welcome to Neverland. And thank you also to Megan Agresto for her perfect voiceover work. We are very grateful. For everyone here at Seabird, I am Christopher Pruitt saying thanks for listening. Hey, it's John again. I hope you enjoyed Captain Barry's stories as much as I did. Next week, you are in for a real treat as you get to ride along with me as I deliver a catamaran from Grenada to Florida together with my friend Ben. You get to come along with us as we fly to Grenada in a strangely empty airplane, survive a week in quarantine, and then navigate the vessel Seahorse about 1,500 miles to Stewart, Florida. And remember to visit our sponsor, theboatgalley.com. If life has you dreaming of boats, Take your first step at theboatgalley.com.
Pressure for you, you've got no time to be true. 